So we're seeing logos, birdsong, rivers, soaring streams, story that inspires. Haiku. Haiku one. Medicine movies, made by players in tune with the woe we all know. Haiku. <laughs> Why am I so giggly today? Your poems make me happy, I suppose. And I appreciate you sharing them every week. The modern Shakespeare. <laughs> Of the solo scene, and it just makes me happier. Well, next week. Oh you no! Know what time it's it not is. time of year again. <laughs> yeah. when I have to write a poem. Yeah, next week you can open the episode. Okay, I will do my best to um, create something as good. So the sixth episode in the storytelling semester. Um, the only thing I want to talk about in that in those haikus is that the the second one, the first line is medicine movies, mm -hmm. and it comes from this interview I watched with Andrew Garfield, who of course played. Spider-Man. Spider-Man 2. Second Spider-Man, mm -hmm. And um, he was, I think, I mean, I know he was just in that recent one, spoilers for anyone who lives underneath a rock. Um, <laughs> it's such a weird thing for me to say. But I know he was in the recent one, but he, I think he was rather disillusioned with his experience in the mm -hmm. Amazing, Amazing Spider-Man movies and the fact that I think he was a big Spider-Man fan or something and the movies went up to his personal estimation as mm -hmm. great films. I mean, most of the films he's been in, other than that, have been kind of epic, I would say. And, like, really arthousey. Not arthousey, well, but a little I, bit. I, th I think a lot of actors want to be taking part in stories that inspire or have some kind of positive message. Mm -hmm. And he was in this interview talking about how those movies were... I mean, he was not exactly coming out and bashing them, but mm -hmm. you got the impression that he found the experience rather shallow. Mm -hmm. And especially what I think he was frustrated with was the fact that they were massive movies, as are all mm. these superhero movies these days. And his words were, these movies are so huge and so many people see them that they could be delivering so much medicine. Mm. But right now, it's a wasted opportunity. And I was thinking about that because like the Marvel movies, the Disney, the Disney machine in general in 2022 is the biggest platform for storytelling in human history. Yeah, and I mean, what shapes the idea of the solo scene is how society can change through stories, through culture, yeah. not just through mechanisms of government and so on. So the idea of movies as medicine is certainly very relevant. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking, amongst other things, about the solo scene Hollywood, yeah. which is kind of a fun thing. And my basic kind of thesis for the episode was that our Hollywood, meaning the solo scene Hollywood, won't be causing sickness. Like I think you can mm -hmm. levy that complaint at most of what, not Hollywood specifically, but the mass media machine, the big studios, et cetera, the marketing, mm -hmm. um, what that puts out today is, is causing a kind of sickness or many kinds of sicknesses. Yeah. Ours will be healing them. I like that. But before we get started, we wanted to be a little bit shameless this week. Yes, we have too much shame, really. Every week we just try and share what is good, what is just what is solacine but then we realize for the solacine to grow as many of you i'm sure would like for a friend or family member to join this community we have solacine on youtube if you'd like to see our faces and see the organism of the week see our movements we definitely since have since starting recording the videos, rely on our hand gestures a lot more. Yeah. However, there aren't that many people seeing them. So please, if you are interested, go on YouTube and subscribe or what have you. You can just listen. And 
if you're listening on whatever podcasting app, if you're on Apple, you can give it a review, like a little rating, and that helps other people see it. And then on SoundCloud, you can like it. So whatever you're listening on, try and figure out how you can give us a thumbs up, for lack of better words. We also have a weekly newsletter, which Anne and I write. It's a little love letter about existence, and we hope it inspires the people who are currently getting it, and it can inspire you. There's a link down below. We have pictures, drawings. This week there were pressed flower images because I wanted <laughs> to send everyone a pressed flower, but that was not really economical. And so, <laughs> right, it's called yeah. Field Notes. So Field Notes. Sign up and become a solar site. I just made that up. I, don't, I like it. I don't really it's like fine. it that much. We'll just roll with it. So the questions for this week, as I mentioned, we're going to be designing the solar scene Hollywood. We're also talking about when and why did stories become mass scale. For those of you who listened last week, you might recognize the fact that those two questions weren't a product of our conversation. Mm -hmm. We realized we only came away from the episode last week with one question. So we kind of uh, thought of those in the interim. We're talking about that and the other question, which was, what matters more for history, the story or the facts? Very Ooh. serious. But we're going to start with the Solo Scene Hollywood. Why not? Very light. So mine, I really just went about how it differs from Hollywood, which you also did, I believe. And my first thing, my first thought about the Solo Scene Hollywood is that there'd be universities. Okay, wow. Does that make sense? No. So I feel like to become an actor or an actress or a director, there's film schools and there's acting schools, but they're kind of decentralized. And I feel like it'd be cool if there was a centralized universities or schools. And then going along from the centralization, I also think our Hollywood should have feeder or satellite Hollywoods as well. Okay. So like... I want ours to be in Vancouver, obviously. So I think the new Hollywood will be in Vancouver. But every few thousand kilometers or something, there'll be a satellite Hollywood. So they're all it's all a network. There's not going to be any big monopolies, but like, oh, this movie does really well, but then you have to like invest it in another project and kind of all support each other. It'll be more of a community, less of a cutthroat competition to see who can make the most money and then climb to the top and buy out all of the yeah <laughs> fascinating yeah why vancouver beaches mountains snow i know that it's in hollywood is in california right because it's hot all year round but i imagine it gets warm making movies so i feel like in vancouver it's usually like very mild but there's still the beaches for your beach scenes the mountains for your mountain scenes and then the snow which is a little bit more yeah. Northern, but it's all close together, and I think it would be kind of nicer than doing it all in California. It'd be a bit more authentic than the... I feel like Hollywood has become very inauthentic. Okay. Almost Las Vegas-esque. I feel like that's the core of Hollywood, is uh, quote-unquote <laughs> movie magic, meaning the inauthenticity, the sets, yeah. the effects. Um, but I see what you mean. You, you retain that geographic, topographical variety. Mm -hmm. So you can shoot different types of movies there. Probably yeah. not so many westerns, but maybe a it's few true. more sailing movies or something like that, mm -hmm. or mountain climbing movies. And that's why you have the satellite Hollywood. So they're all still connected. <laughs> and it's like, The Lighthouse was filmed in Nova Scotia. Yeah. So it's like, that was still a pretty big budget movie and like widespread. But then they had to be over in Nova Scotia with really no resources. So everything probably had to be flown in from like really far off and all the people had to be... They'd never been there. So it was just a bit more. I feel like it is better if there's these little satellites around and they have the equipment and the 
actors who were on the circuit at the time are a bit familiar with them so that people aren't so uprooted and like thrown into the middle of the woods. There's these kind of hubs that they can go to. Hubs. Hubs. I like it. Holly hubs. <laughs> um, I didn't get so into the economics of it as you did. I was mainly just considering the output of Hollywood and also the idea of it kind of. So I kind of broke it down into the things I think would be nice to keep from the current iteration of Hollywood and mm -hmm. the things that I think are most important to change. And that list was a lot bigger, but I didn't want to be too negative. So <laughs> I, I really scoured for, for things I do like about Hollywood or like partially yeah. anyway. So the first one, as you already mentioned with Vancouver, was it being in a cool location. I didn't think mm -hmm. exactly where. I was thinking somewhere more northern, maybe because climate change. Yeah, um, that probably is. I don't know. Maybe a good idea. But I like the idea that it is this this cultural capital, the center of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And along with this, um, a landmark would be nice. Like they have the Hollywood sign. I do like the Hollywood Something sign, like that. Yeah. I'm not sure what it could be, but mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and also it's the fact that you don't really realize the cultural cachet that Hollywood has until you think about how widespread the conception of California as this sun-drenched paradise, basically. Like so mm -hmm. many people have California as... If they could live anywhere, it would be there. Like this yeah, is the, the goal place. And it's I think a big part of that is what Hollywood has painted the picture of. Mm -hmm. But I, I kind of like that idea. It's like this this mecca that people want to go to. And mm -hmm. maybe they go there and the illusion shattered and they see it's sort of driving around and yeah. palm trees and rather an empty <laughs> image. But still I think it's a it's a cool way that Hollywood has mythologized itself. I like having practical tourist destinations. Yeah, it's a place. It's yeah. a real place, not a digital thing. Yeah, it's not like, oh, I want to go to Disney, but it's like Disney World is, it was made for you to want to go there. Mm. But Hollywood or what's another example? Yeah, Broadway, maybe something like that. Yeah, exactly. It start out as a tourist destination. It was just like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of musicals here. Mm -hmm. and, you know, people wanted to go there because of that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I like about Hollywood that I thought is good to keep is the sense of tradition slash purism, purity. And I know this is what a lot of people hate about Hollywood, is what they consider the kind of self-congratulatory, insular, <laughs> self-importance of it all. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know, I, I always like that. I think that Hollywood has this love of itself, the love of mm -hmm. old Hollywood. Like we've seen even in recent years, so many movies about just how, about romanticizing mm -hmm. old Hollywood and the way it kind of has a self-canonization through the Oscars and just the various ways that it considers its its finest products or art pieces of all mm -hmm. time. Um, yeah, I like that idea. I know a lot of people don't like the Oscars either, but I what, like, like them. And the version of the Oscars that we face ourselves with today are not what I like. But mm. I don't feel like anyone's really like, oh, these are great. Yeah. So I feel like if they leaned more into the red carpet, the the essence of the films, the nitty gritty, make it eight hours and congratulate everyone... <laughs> Like, I would like that. And I feel like the people who are actually a part of it would like it as well. Yeah, I think right now they're, they're appealing to nobody. Yeah. But that's for another episode. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a solo scene Oscars episode. Might be fun. Yeah. Um, and the third thing I like about Hollywood, this one was a bit of a stretch, and I was thinking for a long time about something else I actually think is good about it, <laughs> is the increasing transparency that I, I see, anyway, coming around with movie making and celebrities also. And this means, like... The Gen Z celebrities are live streaming themselves, like brushing their teeth and they look ugly and this kind mm -hmm. of thing. And also because of the internet now, 
we can watch an hour-long interview with a director talking literally about how breaking down how he made a scene or mm. a round table with a bunch of directors. And I think there's a lot more openness about the craft and the interior workings of it that mm. is only a good thing. Yeah, um, I agree. I will mention here that a lot of people think that because of that so-called transparency, it's like, oh, she posted a selfie and she has acne or something for a celebrity, mm -hmm. that Gen Z is going to kind of puncture the idea of celebrity culture. Mm -hmm. I don't see that happening. That's not what I see, at least not in like a straight line. It's more like, they just admire them for different reasons. Yeah, as exactly. In, look how transparent she is. And it's not exactly that much better. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think it's good to have role models. I'm, I was always really afraid of having role models. And then because I always heard the saying, like, never meet your idols. And so I was just like afraid to have them in the first place. But I feel like nowadays with people being more transparent, as you said, it's a little bit less terrifying to look up to them because it's like, you're not going to be let down when you can't achieve that or what have you because it's like, oh, it is achievable. They're just a normal human. Yeah. Whereas it maybe used to be if, like, <laughs> whenever I try and come up with an actor name, I always forget just all the actors. Okay, right. Um, Julie Andrews. So it's like, I will never be Julie Andrews because she's just immortalized as, like, a princess in my mind <laughs> or as, like, Maria. And it's like, I will never be Maria. But if perhaps she came around today, if it was Zendaya, it's like, oh, I could be like her. I don't want to be an actor, but, you know, for the example of kids who want to be actors or just cool people. Yeah, very, very roundabout <laughs> way of describing it, but I understand what you mean. But there's that personal thing. And I was also mentioning, like, there's the, there's the craft of it, like the, the fact that you can listen to Tarantino talk on a podcast for three and a half hours about movies mm -hmm. and what movies he likes and what he likes about them and how he wrote this scene and stuff. Like, that's just, that was never possible in yeah, history, that you really could just cool. listen to the best people talking about that thing in detail mm -hmm. i think that's that's a really amazing thing and it in in one sense it shatters the illusion which i like about it mm -hmm. and it kind of that does puncture the celebrity culture a little bit because it makes it takes them down from the level of deities basically mm -hmm. but on the other sense it makes it more impressive because it it humanizes them i think mm -hmm. yeah so those are the things i think are, are good about hollywood that our solo scene version will keep and the three things that i really think are bad that i want to change these are really not hot takes. But the first one is originality. Okay. I think everyone will agree with this, um, that over time there's just been less and less risk-taking and desire to genuinely bring something new or push the medium forward. Yeah, you it, don't want to make a, take a risk and then fail. You don't want to make first cow. Yeah, because you lose 50 or 100 million. That's the, yeah. that's the reason I think the, the money has gone too big. But in the solo scene... Um, originality and risk-taking and and pushing the the medium of film forward will be at the core of the Hollywood not just mm -hmm. small little indie like that will be the norm not mm -hmm. the exception and I mean I personally think that those kind of things tend to be rewarded in the box office because people like seeing new things yeah but I understand why studios are so kind of conservative with it but in the solo scene they'll like money less and so mm -hmm. they'll be a little bit less cynical with it yeah for sure so the next one is celebrity culture, as I mentioned. I mean, you talked about the red carpet as a good thing. I think it's quite a bad thing. I think there is a fine line between admiring, say, Spike Lee for his direction in this movie or Brad Pitt for his acting in this movie mm -hmm. and, like, worshipping them as people, which I think too often our infrastructure, meaning the red carpet being bigger than the event, mm -hmm. the TMZ, the Access Hollywood, all the stuff, 
um, encourages the latter, being the worship of these people. Yeah. And it's frankly, it's bizarre because he's a really good actor or a really good director or a really good um, composer, but why would you... Because you don't know how they are in real life. Yeah, they exactly. could be cruel. They could be the best person ever. They're just very good yeah. at what they do. Yeah, I see what you mean. And then if anything ever comes out about them, it's like then all of their work is invalidated because we hold them up as a person yeah. in such high regard. I it's see what bizarre you mean. how we idolize these people. Yeah. I suppose what I meant by the red carpet was just the aesthetics of Hollywood. Like, I like... No, the seriousness that it takes yeah. itself with. Yeah, yeah. I get that. There probably isn't anything intrinsically wrong with the red carpet, but it's just the way it's what has become yeah i mean i hate listening to it watching it when they're like Uh, oh like who did your nails and who did your hair when you think about how many people's existence is just in orbit of yeah these singular events Mm -hmm. and whatever so-and-so is wearing and i I think that's silly yeah i mean i'm thinking of vogue used to be they would publish clothing designs advice like vogue used to be a lot different than it is today and now it's very just just about celebrities there's nothing about the individual it's just about these events and stuff it's really the only time you ever hear vogue is when you're talking about <laughs> red carpets um and the third thing that i want to change about hollywood is to incorporate a meritocracy into our solo scene version okay. um, because there's there's two ways that <laughs> i think the, the current one is very not a meritocracy and the first one is of course the nepotism which mm. is absolutely brutal and i think that it's really funny because we all have names popping in our heads about like the industry um, <laughs> children who just come up and you're like, where did they come from? Yeah. Uh, and then you learn that their parentage is like, oh, that's, he's his son and like mm-hmm. stuff like this. But also I just think there's a lot more that aren't even common knowledge. Yeah. It's like the reason they just came up out of nowhere and started appearing in everything is because they are related to this person or, mm-hmm. so I think that's, that's silly. And in the solo scene Hollywood, that won't be the case. And the other way is that it's kind of an old boys club, not meaning in the, the sense that it's like not diverse or whatever, although historically, of course, it hasn't been. But mm-hmm. in the sense that if someone makes one really good movie mm-hmm. and they are friendly and get along with other people, mm-hmm. then they just become part of the furniture. Yeah. And so for decades, they can just ride it, phone it in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ride, ride that wave and not really do anything. And mm-hmm. in the solo scene, um, Hollywood, in that regard, I think it would be I suppose you you could say it's more cutthroat, but really it's just more true. It's just more honest. There isn't this kind yeah. of inauthentic pushing of certain people, even though the, let's say, the audience doesn't even really like them. They mm-hmm. just are coasting based on marketing and pushing them as the next big thing. Or yeah. You know what I'm like? I'm sure we have names. I don't want to make it a, a slanderous podcast. Mm-hmm. but No, I see what you mean. But that's kind of in all aspects of the solo scene. It's like someone's not going to okay, you do this one cool thing in your community and then you can just sit back and stop contributing because yeah. people will notice perhaps things will be a bit more transparent, as you said. Yeah. And it's like, you do realize this person hasn't done anything in 30 years to contribute to society. And it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe they should do something. I understand <laughs> if they made a Citizen Kane or something. But if they just made a kind of good movie and they're just coasting back, like, mm-hmm. oh, remember me? That, I, I really don't like that. Yeah. But I think a lot of this this criticism in particular is about the marketing machines and in the solo scene it won't be quite so intrusive we've talked about how ads kind of ruin our lives before yeah but also it's marketing is is i mean there's 
you could say it's about getting the word out, but really it's just about convincing people that so such and yeah. such a movie is good and worth seeing. And I think if a movie, like the cream will rise to the top, if it's, mm -hmm. if it's good enough, the word of mouth will carry it. I mean, we just watched um, Top Gun yesterday, mm -hmm. Top Gun Maverick. We did. And me for the second time, for some reason. I mean, it's a good movie. But it's the fact that I didn't think the marketing machine for this, I mean, it was still a, a huge movie starring Tom Cruise, but I didn't yeah. think it was like Marvel level, like infiltrating the internet with memes mm -hmm. and all this kind of stuff, like uh, astroturfing, I think that's called. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really word of mouth that carried this to a, a higher box office performance and then it, I think most people expected, myself included. Yeah. Because no one was really expecting it to be a very good movie. Yeah, usually always they're just phoning it in for this yeah, yeah. extra money. And the thing is, it, it, we have seen that a lot. We've seen like 80s or 90s sequels, you know, really uh, mm -hmm. long after the fact. And they are just nostalgic mm -hmm. uh, cash grabs, basically. Yeah. And the, the thing is, the word of mouth, whatever the marketing, the word of mouth doesn't carry it because mm -hmm. people see it and they're like, oh, this is just what it was. Yeah. Top Gun actually went out of his way to make a good movie. As we, I said to you as we walked out of it, it's better than it had any right to be, really, like by the type of movie that it was. Um, and it got its reward. So I think that, you know, it just make, make good movies. Like yeah. that's, it's not that hard. <laughs> just don't try and dress it up with all these other marketing and get people in their seats and show them something bad because you're kind of scamming them in a way. It's true. So less scams in the solo scene. I like it. My only other thought on this was, should we have like a publishing Hollywood, like the equivalent for writers okay. in the solo scene, because I was reading a little bit about the history of publishing, and I feel like throughout history there'd be these kind of pop-up areas where it's like, oh, this is where all the writers went, and they would all kind of work together and things like that, but they were always very informal, so I feel like in the solo scene there could be a slightly more formal center for publishing, and perhaps, I guess there's kind of LA for music, right? Like, people go there as well for music. Tennessee but like make it a little bit more okay this is where you go if you're a writer this is where you go if you're a <laughs> filmmaker and I feel like that would produce better media because people would be able to work together yeah be a little bit less disparate kind of along those lines something I was thinking for the meritocracy was the fact that there's genuinely talented film people working on the internet right mm -hmm. now that's there isn't a pathway for them to start working on movies yeah. or making movies because of how insular that community can be. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that uh, more accessible and less elitist like that. Yeah, that's where my idea for universities, then obviously the commune <laughs> idea comes. Communes aren't the right word as, and communist isn't either, but like a co-op kind of collective. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. Going more extreme. Yeah, it's just going to be the communist Hollywood. Comrades. No, no, no. no. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think those kind of ideas are fun to play with. So the organism of the week, since you asked, yep. is, do you recognize this image, Aaron? Yeah, I saw you drawing it today. I did draw it at lunch. The papillon, the butterfly. Which butterfly, Aaron? So this is the monarch butterfly. Alicia's drawn it very nicely. For those who don't know what it looks like, it has yellowish, goldish wings and yep. kind of a black outline. Some black veins running all along it and two antenna. It looks like a butterfly. It is a butterfly. It really is just like the most common butterfly in North America. Yes, yes, yes. So that's those little white ones. I don't know what they're called. But the monarch butterfly, did you hatch them in school? No. I didn't get to hatch them either, but both of my sisters got to go from larva to caterpillar to cocoon to monarch and then release them at the end of the year. 
I just think they're cool. They're common, but they always like wow me because they're just the most exotic looking thing in North America. Oh yeah. Like you see a marmot, we saw a marmot today or a groundhog and you're like, yeah, that looks about right for North America. You see one of these little white butterflies even, you're like, yeah, we deserve that. But then these are just so majestic and they look tropical and they're just gorgeous. And they like certain types of flowers. They only nest on milkweed. They won't nest on any other plant. And they're wonderful. They migrate southward every late summer and autumn. And because climate change, their migratory habitats are being threatened immensely. It's like too hot for them. And so there was a bunch of pushes to get them listed as endangered because their populations are dropping dramatically. However, this is something I learned today. There's actually a priority list of getting listed as endangered or threatened or what have you. Yes. And because they don't really cause, they're not like a major pollinator. They pollinate, but they're not exactly bees. They can't even be listed as I knew about endangered. This. I learned about this in school. Well, that's that, what an environmental science degree does for you. What's it called? The IUCN Red List. Yeah. There's so they're red listed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that made me sad because I love them. Right. So if you see a monarch, be kind to it. Please. I also remember in school, um, in middle school, this is for the example of biomimicry. Year after year, we would learn about this one butterfly that mimics <laughs> the monarch butterfly. Yeah, exactly. So monarch butterflies are cool. I just wanted to share that with the world because I've been really liking butterflies lately. I was saying to Aaron today, I suppose I wasn't outside as much as I am in Montreal as I was like other years. So I'm just seeing a lot more butterflies and I'm like, these are so incredible. <laughs> They're just so delicate. Yeah. And it's like, how do they exist? They're like fairies. No, butterflies and dragonflies are probably my favorite creatures. They're incredible. And yeah, the monarch is my favorite. Some other names for it are the common tiger, the wanderer, and the black veined brown, which is kind of unoriginal, but I'll take it. The black veined brown? Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that one so much. It doesn't roll off the tongue very <laughs> no, well. No, but the wanderer, I like that. <laughs> yeah um so that's monarchs be kind to them oh also they were bred on the international space station so they brought like that's where they came up from there. no but <laughs> they brought up some little caterpillars and turned them into butterflies in space okay. why i'm not entirely sure i think ha it had something to do with migration and seeing if it was instinctual or not happy to know where my tax money is going yeah <laughs> <laughs> i'm joking so, it's a monarch. And then, speaking of the monarch, when did stories become mass scale? Right. So, this Tell question, um, I thought it would be best um, to first define mass scale. Yeah. Because even when we were trying to word the question, we spent about five <laughs> minutes trying to come up with something better. We couldn't. If people know of a better word for what we're trying to say, <laughs> let us know. Please. Somehow. Um, I was thinking mass scale is like, Lots of people, I wrote mm -hmm. lots in all caps, okay. and largely experiencing the thing simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So for many, many years, I wouldn't call like books mass scale because people weren't really lining up like they did for the last Harry mm -hmm. Potter. You yeah, there I mean? were like five copies of the Iliad and you had to be an elite. Yeah, over, over to, time, a lot of people yeah. read them, but it wasn't passed around. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you mean mass produced, massed. Yeah, mass produced. Distributed. Yeah, mass distributed. Yeah. So the way I focused on this question was that there are two kind of elements to it. Yeah. There is the, because the question was just when did stories become mass scale? Mm -hmm. So I was thinking 
there's storytelling mm -hmm. and there's story taking, or story yeah. receiving, like the audience. And I focus a little bit more on the audience because I think that is very interesting when I look around today. Mm -hmm. But if you want to talk about the storytelling, go ahead, because I figured you would. Yeah, I'll just give a brief history of the mass scale dissemination of stories, because in my head, it does seem like it's a lot more recent. Like the term mass media was coined in 1920 with the onset of radio, television, films, like all of the things that we would consider media today. Um, however, the most interesting thing I learned, which you had told me before about Chinese storytelling, is that in the 7th to 11th century BC, uh, their military would be studying, well, it began then, then it continued on, would study this set of poems called the Book of Songs. And there's a whole history about storytelling. But there's this one specific set of stories or poems that were like really widely known, like the average person had heard them. Not everyone was literate, obviously, but yeah. it was really just like the whole culture knew these stories. And then obviously this continued through all of, like this was all of human history. There'd be these widely known myths about the gods and about the Bible. Everyone knew the Bible back in the day. And it was like, you couldn't read it for yourself. So you really had to rely on other people telling you it. But stories have just all, for all of human history, shaped culture. Like, it's inseparable, really. Which I just, it's like, obviously you knew that. Yeah. But to read about it in a little bit of detail, it's like, wow. Like, what would we be without stories and without all having the same set of stories to kind of draw from? So it's like, kind of cool that it's continued through today. Because that seems like something that could have very easily been lost had yeah. we not found these modern ways to do it. Especially with the atomization of everyone now. Yeah, when exactly. We're not even at really the water cooler in the office anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's like completely different from what it used to be. It used to be completely reliant on gathering around the campfire and word of mouth and going to lectures and so on. And then in 1440, the printing press was invented and they started printing the Bible and then they started printing newspapers and so I feel like the really local stories that used to just exist in one location. So I feel like up until the printing press, they'd be like, okay, yeah, this area had this set of stories that they circulated by word of mouth and maybe some printed copies. And this area had different stories. Once it could be done on a mass scale, it'd be easy to ship a few newspapers overseas and ship a few books over here because it was a lot less time consuming to make it. And then from then on, we've kind of ended up today where everyone's right. on TikTok. So the question, in other words, was not worded so well. No. So, so what you would say is that stories have always been mass scale, and therefore mm -hmm. the why is kind of just humans, human nature. Yeah. But it's more like when did they become global, and that's what you answered. Yeah. So last five hundred years or so. Yeah, about. Um, this is kind of unrelated, but I just want to give this story before handing it over to you. Did you know that Alex? So Alexander the Great was yes. a Greek emperor, conqueror, human, who was trying to save the Persian Empire from collapse. And apparently, the, he had a copy of the Iliad, which was normal for royalty to study. However, he just took it really seriously. So it feels like when people get like really fixated on like one film or one director. So he took it really seriously and like became literate just so he could read it for himself. And like, he really took it to heart. And so when he was going on his conquest of the empire he stopped in troy which at the time had no tactical relevance at all like there was no reason for him to stop and he got people to reenact scenes from the iliad 
just for effect. Yeah. And he really lends his success, which he did successfully for a while, unite all these places <laughs> to the guidance of the Iliad. And he also slept with his copy every night. So I just like, I don't know. I just think that's funny. Like take things seriously. And don't be afraid of it. Impressive. Yeah. It's like us with Ratatouille wanting to go to Paris. Yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> always been fam fanboys. There's always been the yes. The equivalent today would be us and Lord of the Rings. Us sleeping with our <laughs> lyrics to the editions. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. Anyway. So uh, that's a very nice timeline history. <laughs> I, I to be honest, I I was just like observing. I was just writing down some observations. Um, I didn't think these thoughts through fully. So maybe <laughs> we can expand on them here. I don't know. Yeah. Sure thing. So what I was thinking was that. It doesn't seem to be just this cause and effect that with technological increases and globalization, there was also the increase in audiences consuming these things simultaneously. Like that yeah. wasn't just uh, an effect of the technological cause mm -hmm. or like the, the natural cause, I would say, of expansion. Yeah. It's like that kind of helped drive the former a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Audiences wanting to experience things together with yeah. ever more people and ever more simultaneously has helped drive the streaming and, and that kind of thing. So it's like there's this desire for people to mm. be reacting to things live and together. And That's we, really... Yeah. Uh, like, even in the last three years, like, Netflix used to be a lot more localized, but now there's a lot of... There's Bollywood, there's Korean drama, all on American and Canadian Netflix in a way that even like two or three years ago wasn't the case. Mm. So I feel like that's a really good like little microcosm of this happening. As you said, people demanding, well, they were watching that show over there. It's so, like, I want to see it. Yeah. And then Netflix reacting. Or I was also thinking about the movies during the pandemic. And I think for some studios, it's continued since that released in cinemas, but simultaneously on streaming mm -hmm. because they didn't want to wait because people yeah. wanted to be there immediately. Um, and I mean, we feel this, I feel this anyway, because I always um, watch a lot of sports growing up, especially football. And even if you're watching it digitally, like you're not at the stadium, mm -hmm. there's a big difference between watching it live and watching it after the mm -hmm. fact. And I was always like, why is this, why is this the case? Why is, I mean, it doesn't really make much logical sense for me because like you say, you're not actually there. It's, it shouldn't yeah. really matter when you watch it, but there is a sense that you want to be on in the present. Like you want to be on the, the zeitgeist like the cultural now you feel the vibes yeah the vibes i mean the the, <laughs> the zeit the zeit vibes yeah. which i think are defined almost entirely now by stories i mean i don't really watch netflix or tv shows mm -hmm. but i can still trace from outside of it from game of thrones to tiger king to the last dance with michael jordan mm -hmm. to um squid game mm -hmm. to stranger things mm -hmm. and it's like i didn't watch any of those yeah. but that's just the zeitgeist. So people are moving from these. So maybe the question should have been about the acceleration and how quickly we move from these now. Yeah. But another thing I wanted to mention was that because obviously there's a lot of, um, what's it called? FOMO, fear mm -hmm. of missing out. People are like, well, I have to watch this because everyone else is watching this. Yeah. But there's a sense also that it's, it's not even enough to be to watch the thing and then talk about it with your friends afterwards. Mm -hmm. People feel a compulsion to react quote unquote in mm -hmm. real time while watching it yeah. on social media. And I think a lot of this mm -hmm. is because we don't have a living room full of friends for the most yeah, part doing exactly. it. Exactly. I remember when the, the flash was a TV show, it still might be on, but there was this Facebook group of people all in my community who would watch it. Then they would live like 
Facebook post. In your community? Yeah, like it was people, all so, people I knew. That's strange. Um, I was not a part of it. My mom was. But anyway, it was just, it was strange. It was like, why don't we just watch together? But it was people you didn't know that well that you'd watch yeah, in your living room. That's the thing. That yeah. Would be, I like that idea. I like that idea too. So a few weeks ago I was talking, I was like, oh, maybe there wouldn't be as many TV shows. But TV shows are kind of cool. Like we're watching Seinfeld, <laughs> as I've said a billion times, but it's like, Imagine how cool it would be watching this live as it came out every week. Like, that would be, everyone's kind of watching it. You talk about it. I yeah. don't know. I like it. Yeah. Do we have any questions from that that we could form for next week, perhaps? Perhaps. What are the impacts of the acceleration of storytelling? Like, the quick turnover, the... Yeah. Because I feel like it's not like the budgets are lower or anything. It's like the budgets are almost too high. Like, there's no limits to storytelling these days. Mm. So, perhaps what limits would help encourage better storytelling that might be two questions but yeah well we can form something out of it yeah so for the final part of the episode today we are asking ourselves what matters more for history the story or the facts Mm -hmm. and (laughs) i had a simple answer for this which is the story is most often more impactful when it comes Mm -hmm. to like what matters more the the matters part that's is subjective so i was just thinking about its impact on people Mm -hmm. and i went to that that old philosophical um, existential hypothetical about if a tree falls in a forest <laughs> and there's no one to hear it, did it really fall? And I kind of altered it as in like maybe 10 people see it or 10 mm-hmm. people hear it and then one of them makes a movie about it mm-hmm. and so a million people see it. Yeah. Then the movie, i.e. his story of it or her story of it was more important than the actual occurrence. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. So I took a very long-winded approach to this, okay. <laughs> as you can imagine. I didn't think I was going to get this heated about it, but then 12-year-old World War II Alicia is coming out here when right. she was very obsessed with history and reading everything about everything that ever happened. Um, and since then, I have read not much about everything that's happened. So we're pulling from a deep, deep part of myself here. And there were many rabbit holes I went down, but... My first recommendation to you, it seems kind of unrelated, but there's this podcast series and it's about, it's called Checks and Balances. It's through The Economist. And they did this series on critical race theory in America and that whole event, series of events since like the 60s and 70s when it first started kind of cropping up as a, not a political theory, a legal theory, and then what it's turned into today. And it's a good example of what matters more, history or story, and or should we let people make these decisions for themselves, or like what to, what parts of history to teach? And their conclusion surprised me. I thought the conclusion would be absolutely not. It needs to be mandated. We can't have people out here calling the Civil War something else, or just completely forgetting about these parts of American history and just erasing entire groups of people from the story. I thought that would be the conclusion because to me that's like the obvious answer. Like, no, we can't let people teach children lies or altered truths. And but their conclusion was the facts will win out. Like, yeah, you can have this kind of fake story, but kids and people over time will. This is what they've observed. They wake up to the fact that it's not true or that it's leaving out parts. You and I were discussing today how perhaps in the 80s, Canadian history was instructed from a very Canada colonial-centric perspective of like, oh, the pioneers came over on the ship Hector and they landed in Pictou and then they 
started this town and it was glorious and all of these great things have happened since then. There was the war and they came over on D-Day and they just shut it down. And that's like all people learned in the 80s. And so because people who were educated in the 80s are now parents, they're like now being introduced to perhaps critical race theory. And they're like, what? this is crazy that we didn't learn this. We need to make sure the kids are learning this. They don't realize that over the last 40 years, there have been micro changes. And now perhaps it's definitely not perfect and it needs to keep changing but these changes happen slowly that like you and I when we were taught about Canadian history they didn't exclude racism slavery indigenous history it wasn't as extensive as it perhaps should have been but we suspect that even our siblings who are younger than us had a more comprehensive and truthful education of Canadian history and that it will just keep getting better and more honest because the truth seems to win out. Um, that was really long-winded. But I think my conclusion to this question is that, one, you have to decide why you're teaching history to kids. I said to you there's three, <laughs> three reasons that you might teach history. To me, the most important is teach history so he's, history doesn't repeat itself. Like We don't learn about World War II because it's cool. We learn about it because we don't want another yeah. genocide. But on that note about... <laughs> um, that's, a, that's an oft-repeated point and of course it's true that the reason mm -hmm. history is so important is so that you don't repeat its mistakes and all this kind yeah. of thing um, the thing is that the history that is being taught there has to be true for its mm -hmm. mistakes to be avoided like mm -hmm. you can't just teach this crazy um, fantasy um, mythologized history and then expect people to learn lessons from it because yeah. it doesn't have the the, the world weariness the the proven through timeness that mm -hmm. the actual truth does so for instance with world war ii um we we learned it in school mm -hmm. but nowhere near like a comprehensive version of it yeah and nowhere near i would say an objective version of it mm -hmm. so what do you really want yeah is, is a question i mean for us canada was posited as like the key to winning it at least that yeah. was my experience and as you said on d-day like canada yeah. was posited as <laughs> the reason the war was won. And I know that probably <laughs> most countries do this with their own uh, history, right? They yeah, say like, of course. Well, we were the reason that this happened. And, you know, they, they buff up yeah. their own uh, achievements and their own mm -hmm. role. And I'm not saying that Canada had a negligible role, but most countries probably wouldn't teach it mm -hmm. with Canada being like the saviors. And <laughs> I, um, that's just from history class. But I was thinking about with regards to the storytelling mm -hmm. semester that we're in, like the Western films coming mm -hmm. out of America, they was so widespread and so popular that even people who have never seen a Western have the image in their head. Yeah. And that is not just their image of a Western movie, but of the pioneer frontier era of America. Mm -hmm. That's what they see. That's how successful that story was in terms of defining, quote unquote, the facts yeah. with the manifest destiny and the conquering the wilderness of its savages. Mm -hmm. And also, like, you can look at Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. which unfortunately I had to watch two times in one day for my film class one day in university that's a story for another time <laughs> but the way that these stories can interfere with history class i mean i think there's like i'm not one who thinks that historical films should be like textbooks mm -hmm. i'm all for artistic license in this thing but i think the line between storytelling and history has become maybe it always was but with yeah. movies and with the mass scale as we talked about previously it's just completely blurred and to the point that so when people get their news, oh, this alternate history, did you know that this is really what happened from some mm -hmm. guy on YouTube? And it's like, they might just be telling a story. Yeah. And, and this is like another thing about the 
the trust that people have in the the institutions of <laughs> news and journalism and all these things. But with regards to our trust in Hollywood, I do think there is a degree of authenticity, if not to the, I say the minor facts, but to the to the story. I think so. Authent authenticity to the story. Yeah, that and it, we should require. Like an example I have is Braveheart, because people, um, history buffs, get quite grumpy about Braveheart, Mel Gibson's movie, because it was quite inaccurate, like mm -hmm. extremely inaccurate. I mean, there was, the, I think the final battle, or one of the battles is called like the Battle of Bridge X. Yeah. And in the movie, it's just not even on a bridge. It's just mm -hmm. in a field yeah. and things like this. But I'm again, I, I don't know about Braveheart, so I'm, I don't want to talk about whether he got the broad strokes right, mm -hmm. but it's important that the broad strokes are gotten right, even if you set the bridge battle in a field, if mm -hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah, like you don't want to have... Like, Birth of a Nation doesn't get the broad strokes right. No. But Braveheart might, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I see what you mean. So that's a good point. And yeah, I think stories can be very useful in teaching history. But the thing is, it's not like history is uninteresting. It's not like telling the actual story of how America was founded would be, like, boring. Unless you're harping on about there were 18 people on this ship. There were 13 people <laughs> who died of whatever. And it's yeah. like, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's what history class often does I know. in school. But once I had, so I worked at a church and the pastor of the church said to me when he was like preparing a message, he was like, no one's going to remember and no one cares what the facts. But what he meant by that was like, tell the story, like give the essence of it, but don't be like, but if you get to a point where you're supposed to say, oh, it happened in 1618, but you like can't remember if it was 1618 or 1619, like Just don't get one. off track. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and that's probably, I don't like lying. I don't think it's good to be accidentally teaching wrong things but i mean like if you're a history teacher and you're giving a presentation to your class about something and then you get to this point you can't remember what it is it's like just skip over it and <laughs> as long as the lesson is the same you can come back to that exact figure and be like oh it's actually 173 people not 170 people and it's like it doesn't make that much of a difference to the the moral of the story, if that makes any sense. Like I, this is another example. I worked at a heritage site and there was this huge debate on if there was 153 or 154 passengers on the ship. And it was like, the moral of the story is that the ship came and it got here and brought some people who survived and were in fact the settlers, the founders of this area. Like, it doesn't exactly matter how many people are left with. If there was a baby who is two months and undocumented, like at the end of the day, the kid, that's what will bore the kids and they will end up not learning the lessons because they're too bored about the years and the dates and stuff. So there's that. Another thought I had unrelated, this is kind of back to the education semester, but that we should have a current events class and a history class and keep them very separate because I feel like the problem with teaching history is that we always want to relate it to today. This is how we can see these things, these patterns already repeating. This is how you are playing into it. I feel like that might be overwhelming to people and that's when parents get up in arms about like, you're offending my child, you're telling them that they're wrong, but it's like, just teach what happened. And then if you want to get into the, how it applies with you, make that separate so that people aren't out here saying we can't be teaching this history because history happened, we can't change it, we can change. What's happening today? Yeah. I mean, in Canada, as we talked about a little bit in our education semester, what we, our class anyway is called social studies. 
it's just a mess all around. I mean, Horrible. I was, I was yeah. saying to you last week that I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about uh, in their country geography class. And <laughs> they said the class was, you know, maps, rocks, <laughs> flags. And it was just like we lump all these things together. that don't really make any sense. So, yeah, that's one thing. I was thinking this is completely off topic, but a question for next week could be about storytelling through music. We got cool. an email about that from yeah. one of our listeners. Shout out. So You know who you are. <laughs> yeah, I think we can talk about that for next week. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And yeah, I hope I wasn't too all over the place today. I just randomly had a lot of thoughts about these things, which is good. Perhaps I'll expand upon them in field notes. Thank you for listening. Bye.